An American Airlines Boeing 767 is taking off out of Chicago O'Hare bound for Miami when something goes wrong. How did an unexpected problem reemerge for our one-year anniversary episode? Woo! One year. Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And I'm tired. <laughs> and this is our one-year episode. Woo! Woo! Yay! We're one year in. Can't believe it. It is actually hard to believe we have done this 52 times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for the most part. We skipped a week. Yeah, we skipped one week, well, but then we've done enough miranda sounds to way beyond make up for that. To be fair, we did record for those weeks. We did. We just lost the recording. We've actually done this like 58 times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whatever. Okay. So, what are we covering today, Nick? So, we have a relatively special one, and you'll understand why more as we go through this. But we're doing American Airlines Flight 383, the second one. The sequel. <laughs> the sequel. I thought there were three. There's kind of three, but this is really the only other important one. This, okay. There's legitimately at least two. Yes. Okay. This one was from 2016. As a matter of fact, it's only just under four years old from the release of this it's episode. It's basically the anniversary of this crash, too. So Because it happened on October the 28th of 2016. Hmm. For those of you who are confused when we say this is the second American Airlines 383... There's a the first one. No. We previously covered it in episode 11. We are going to recall so many episodes in this episode, your <laughs> mind's going to be blown. And it occurred in 1965. So. 1965. This is American Airlines 383 from 2016. Yes. This was a 767-300ER with Fancy. winglets. Yes. So a bigger airplane. With the tail number November 345 Alpha November. And it was to be doing a scheduled flight from Chicago O'Hare to Miami International. The captain for this flight was to be Anthony Paul Cochinesh. He was 61 years old. He had a total of 17,400 hours, of which 4,000 hours were on the 767. And he had previously flown for TWA. He had. As a matter of fact, so had the first officer, who was David Travis Ditzel. He was 57 years old. He had more hours at 22,000 hours total, of which 1,600 hours were on the 767. Dang. Yeah. That's a lot of hours. It is a lot of hours. There were to be 161 passengers on this flight and nine crew. The flight crew arrived at 1.20 p.m. and were to depart about one hour later. The captain was to be the pilot flying, and the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring. The captain taxied the airplane to runway 28 right for takeoff from the November 5 intersection. So, in other words, they weren't using the end of the runway. They were using a an intersection further down the runway. How long was the runway? It is 13,000 feet long. So they had enough runway They had to way do more that. than enough. As a matter okay. of fact, we did the same thing when we were in Chicago on the same runway. Chicago? Yep. With the 777. 28 right is a 13,000 foot long runway. It's 150 feet wide. The available length, leaving from the November 5 intersection, is 9,750 feet, which is plenty when you're at sea level. Is that at sea level? Basically. There's a lake there. At 2.30 p.m. and 57 seconds, the air traffic controller cleared the flight for takeoff. The first officer acknowledged the clearance of the radio. Now we're going to take a trip. I like trips. I'm not going to like this (laughs) trip, am I? (laughs) 
No, it's not oh. much of a trip. Oh, no. They don't get off the ground. <laughs> if their trip was only 30, 3,300 feet long? Wait. No, 50... Whatever. I'll get, I'll get there. Okay. <laughs> we'll see. At 2.31 p.m. in 19 seconds, the throttle was moved forward for takeoff power. Five seconds later, the engines were fully spooled up to takeoff power. Eight seconds later, as the plane was rolling down 2.8 right, the first officer made the 80-knot call-out as routine on any takeoff. 12.4 seconds later, as the airplane was accelerating through 128 knots, a loud bang is heard, and the airplane suddenly lurched as it lost some speed, and the airframe began to vibrate. The captain stated, whoa! The airplane began drifting to the right almost immediately. The aircraft had only traveled about 3,300 feet down the runway by that point. The captain immediately initiated the rejected takeoff maneuver. The throttles were moved to idle at 2.31 p.m. and 45 seconds. And one second later, the auto brakes activated as they had been set in the rejected takeoff position as part of the standard operating procedures for takeoff from both the manufacturer and the company. The airline. So rejected takeoff on the auto brakes literally means if the throttles are moved to idle from takeoff power, it will automatically assume, while there's pressure on the landing gear, that you want to come to an immediate stop. And it did so. That's probably a good thing. Yes. At that moment, the aircraft was at 134 knots when the rejected takeoff was initiated, which was also V1. So they were doing the rejected takeoff Right, right at, at V1. V1 speed. So they had to slow down from their absolute maximum speed that was allowable. The auto speed brakes activated within two seconds of the auto brakes. At 2.31 p.m. and 50 seconds, as the airplane was slowing down quickly, the first officer contacted the air traffic controller to inform them that they rejected the takeoff and they would be stopping on the runway. The air traffic controller responded, Roger, Roger, fire. The first officer asked the air traffic controller if they saw smoke or fire. The ATC responded, yeah, fire off the right wing. <laughs> Do you see fire? Yeah. Yes. Why wouldn't we tell you? We're yes. telling you fire. Yes, fire. <laughs> At 2.32 p.m. exactly, the first officer said, okay, send out the trucks. Wait, what? 2.32 p.m. exactly. That's funny. We'll come back to that. Yes, I know. You'll understand why that is incredibly ironic later. Okay, cool. Yeah, so at 2.32 p.m., the first officer said, okay, send out the trucks. In other words, the fire trucks. Simultaneously, the engine fire warning sounded in the cockpit. The air traffic controller confirmed that they were sending the fire trucks. At this point, the airplane had decelerated to 35 knots ground speed. The captain called for the engine fire checklist as the airplane was still slowing down at 2.32 p.m. and 4 seconds. So this was only 4 seconds later, which was... 20.6 seconds after the initial bang was heard. The airplane came to a complete stop at 2.32 p.m. and 9.8 seconds, so only 5.8 seconds later, which was 26.4 seconds after the bang noise. So this was all within 30 seconds, basically. The crew could smell the smoke as soon as they came to a stop. The right engine fuel switch was shut off as part of the engine fire checklist. The first officer pulled the right engine fire lever and then later rotated the handle to release one of the fire extinguisher bottles into the right engine, while the left engine remained at idle, running. At 2.32 p.m. and 42 seconds, the captain stated, Oh, look at the smoke! Check out the smoke! That was the captain. <laughs> Check it out, dude! Check look out the, the smoke! smoke. <laughs> look at all this smoke, man! It's not like the plane's on fire or anything. Yeah. 
Three seconds later, the captain called for the evacuation checklist. The first officer acknowledged the instruction one and a half seconds later. The first officer then began calling out the checklist items while the captain completed them. The second and third steps in that checklist regarded the depressurization of the aircraft. The flight crew noted that it seemed to take quite some time for the airplane to depressurize. While they were performing these checklist items, they could hear commotion in the cabin outside of the cockpit door. They realized that the cabin crew had initiated an evacuation. The captain then shut down the left engine as the fourth item on that checklist, and then made an announcement over the PA, the public announcement system, to evacuate as he activated the evacuation signal switch in the cockpit as well. So at that point, they were ordered to evacuate by the captain. The flight crew then completed the remaining checklist items prior to exiting the flight deck. As they exited the flight deck, they observed a lot of smoke in the cabin. They were immediately met by the lead flight attendant, who informed them that all passengers and the other cabin crew members were all off the plane already. The first officer then evacuated, followed by the lead flight attendant, and finally the captain is the last person off. After they had evacuated, the captain used his personal cell phone to contact operations to get an accurate headcount of the occupants on board for the first responders. This is also how operations found out that the airplane was not going to make its flight. Hey, uh... <laughs> just so you know, we're evacuated all over the runway at O'Hare. <laughs> and also, just so you know, uh, one of our engines caught fire. Yeah, so. you don't have this airplane anymore. They began applying a film-forming foam about 2 minutes and 51 seconds after being notified of the fire. So that was pretty quick. Within three minutes, they were there applying the foam all over the fire. In all, 21 passengers were injured during the evacuation, but everyone survived. So, we're going to talk about something specific. We're going to talk about the evacuation. <coughs> Mucho importanto. Yes. As it turns out, this is where you're going to get mad. Oh, good. <laughs> because while it seemed great, it turns out it was complete chaos. Oh, great. Immediately after the airplane came to a stop, chaos began as the flight attendants told passengers to remain seated while other flight attendants, mainly at the middle and rear, began telling passengers to evacuate. Because whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I know. Well, here's why. The, pa the flight attendants at the front of the airplane, they knew something was wrong. They could see a little bit of smoke, but they didn't think much of it. At the rear of the cabin, it was full of smoke. And the flight attendants wanted to get everybody off. So this makes a little bit of sense, because now there's a sense of urgency since the cabin's full of smoke. Okay, but shouldn't you, like, call the forward flight attendants and be like, Yo, there's some fire and smoke back here. We gonna leave. We'll get to that in a second. <laughs> Great. <laughs> The leftover wing exit was opened at 2.32 p.m. and 20 seconds, which was about 10 seconds after the airplane came to a complete stop. So that was the point at which the first exit opened. The forward left door opened 18 seconds after that, and the forward right door opened 22 seconds after the overwing exit, so about 4 seconds after the left forward door. 38 seconds after the plane came to a stop, the left rear door opened. The left engine was finally shut down about 21 seconds after that. So the engine wasn't off yet. Correct. Oh, that's a ridiculously dangerous. Let's just have people get out on the wing while there's an engine running. Well, great job. Here's how crazy this gets, because it gets, there's so much more. It took roughly two minutes and 21 seconds for the air, from the time that the airplane came to a complete stop to the point that the last occupant left the airplane. The NTSB interviewed the cabin crew after the accident. The cabin crew reported that passengers began moving from the right side to the left side of the plane while they were still moving, so before the airplane ever came to a stop. 
because there was flames and smoke. Once the plane stopped, some passengers began rushing toward the exits and urged the flight attendants uh, to open the doors. No. Are no. You, are you ready? Because now you're going to get really mad. Oh, no. Two flight attendants stated that they were unable to properly use the interphone system within the airplane. Hence, they couldn't call the forward flight attendants. Right. Also, the forward flight attendant had trouble trying to make an announcement over the PA system. He wasn't sure if he called the cockpit or the, the over... Yeah. All right. Ready? Are you ready? Yeah. Two flight attendants reported that the rear left exit could not be used immediately because the left engine was still running, which was blowing the slide rearward. So in other words, they couldn't even use that left rear door. No shit. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, if an engine is running, period, people should not be getting off the plane yet. The captain at this point also has not said evacuate. Yeah. Do you have... I mean... Were you trained in proper procedure? Who cares if they're rushing at you? You are the flight attendant. You say, sit your ass back down and wait till we tell you to leave. <laughs> you think you're mad now. Two flight attendants also reported passengers evacuating with baggage, despite being directed to leave their bags behind. Does no one ever listen to anything? As a matter of fact, one of the flight attendants in their interview stated that she tried to take the bag from one of the passengers trying to evacuate with it, but she realized she was stopping up everything behind that and was keeping people from evacuating, so eventually she had to let the woman go with her bag. There's a reason they don't let you take your baggage off with you. You can get really hurt. Not only that, you're going to clog everybody up trying to get your baggage out of the whatever compartment you have it in. So here's the key. None of the flight attendants made a formal call to evacuate at any point in time. That's a boo-boo. That's not good. Well, it is, in theory, the job of the captain to decide when to evacuate the airplane because... He has to shut off the engines. The engine's running. Right. He had followed the checklist actually exactly and perfectly. He had waited, he had gone through the checklist, shut down the engine, and then called to evacuate. At that point, the flight crew's call to evacuate came after nearly all of the passengers were already off of the airplane. And they had to ev evacuate, generally, off the left side, because, because the, the right, right side, side was, was on fire. fire. <laughs> yep. Okay, listen. I realize that when you're on an airplane, and maybe you look outside, you see an engine's on fire. You're gonna get a little panicky, mm -hmm. right? Uh, don't get out of your seat yet. <laughs> yeah. Also, the cabin crew is... Probably, like, 10% of their job is about, like, servicing you in the cabin and doing drinks and stuff. Everything else is how to live through an accident. Yes. Listen it, to them. Yeah. But to be fair, the cabin crew just let people walk right over them. I mean... Pretty much. They should not have opened any of the doors. They should have made people sit back down in their seats. They should have done a lot of things because they weren't supposed to evacuate yet. And they didn't do it. Now, to be fair, the passengers moving from the right side to the left side, when you see what happened, you'll understand a little bit more why they did that when you realize the flames were coming through the wall into their face. Okay, so that's a little bit different, right? But you shouldn't be trying to leave the aircraft before there's an Correct. actual evacuation call from the captain. Correct. So You also shouldn't be taking baggage right. at all. Right. Like, the person who did that, you could have killed somebody. Right. So I have one more note on the evacuation. Remember that whole thing you said when I, when I was talking about the left overwing exit opened, the engine was still running? Yes. You said all about that, right? 
Well, they did interview, interview several passengers, and one of them was the most seriously injured passenger. That passenger said they reported evacuating from the leftover wing exit slide, but as soon as they reached the ground, they were blown over by the jet blast. I wonder why. From the still running left engine. He stood up and began running to a grass strip next to the runway. It was then that he noticed he was having some bad back pain. Well, maybe just, you know, stay with me here. Maybe you don't exit the plane while an engine's still running. Yeah. Maybe, just maybe. (laughs) (laughs) That'll keep it so you don't get injured from an engine. Yeah. Just a thought. Just a thought. So now for some wreckage. The airplane came to rest 5,975 feet from the November 5 intersection with about 3,775 feet of runway remaining. So that was okay. Could have been worse. Breaking marks from the airplane's main landing gear began about 3,961 feet from the November 5 intersection and stretched about 2,284 feet to where the airplane's final position was. So in other words, the brakes were completely locked up from the moment that the auto brakes activated, which is the intent, because you're trying to make the airplane come to a complete stop as soon as possible. And this is a big plane. Yes. All right, the fire. Well, the fire consumed most of the right engine, almost the entirety of the right wing, which melted and collapsed, a large portion of the rear fuselage, and the right horizontal stabilizer. Oh my gosh! That's Miranda looking at a picture. And that's not snow on the ground, by the way. This is October. We're talking... It, that's the foam. Oh. Holy crap. Yeah. There's a picture on our website. It is charred. Yeah. Like half of the plane's gone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the airplane was completely destroyed. Nah, really? It was written off. You don't say. Yep. Uh, almost immediately, large pieces of metal debris began to be found scattered around the airport. One piece was found 475 feet from where the bang occurred in the direction of the terminals, the passenger terminals. Another was found 1,365 feet from the bang point, also in the direction of the terminals. And another was found 1,500 feet from the bang point, also in the direction of the terminals. And what was found, I'm sorry? Pieces of metal. Oh. Ooh. Large pieces of metal. Uh, oh. Okay, that's an explosion. Yes. So, there were two holes in the right wing... Hole 1 began in the bottom of the front of the wing and went upward through the leading edge panel. But it was much smaller than hole 2, which was caused when something went through further aft than hole 1, severed the main engine fuel feed line, severed a rib in the wing, and then exited through the top skin in an inboard direction. So it exited up and towards the fuselage, so south, or since they were taking off in the westward position. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. But you might note that all of the pieces of metal that were found were north toward the terminals. So something, as the kids say, yeeted south. (laughs) (laughs) At some point, investigators got a call about something going on in another building on airport grounds. As it turns out, a big chunk of metal was called in from a UPS facility about a half mile south where the bang was heard. Yep, it went into their warehouse. Oh, no one was hurt. It was the furthest found piece of metal. (laughs) Yeah, just find it. You're just working, chilling. Giant piece of metal comes through the door. You're like, smash! 
Where'd that come uh, from? Bob! <laughs> it's raining metal in here! <laughs> oh Something just came through the roof! <laughs> this piece matched the ones that were found closer to the terminal. And it, the part was determined to be the high-pressure turbine stage 2 disc, which I have a picture of here. So, stage 2 is the one in the back, mm. which you can't really see. There we go. And it looks something like that. Oh, that looks familiar. Yeah. <laughs> what are you having flashbacks to, Miranda? <laughs> no, I get it. UA-232. Yeah. Yes. I that's... And that's not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> so there's also the map of where all the disc fragments were found. There's disc fragment A was found in a building. <laughs> all the way at the bottom. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so you can see where they entered it basically November 5. They were moving. They had their the bang. Bang. Bang was right there. Auto brakes activated at the next little black point. Yep. And then that last black point is where they came to a stop. Hmm. Oh, yes. There's also a gouge in the runway where the bang was heard. Yes. Do you want me to show the video? Yes. So pay attention toward the top of this video because that's where the runways are. This is looking from basically one of the towers. Okay. Toward the top. There's there the airplane is. off the left side. Watch. Poof. Poof. <gasps> you see where it hit the concrete? That's where it exploded. And then there's the fire. And then there's the fire. Oh, Good lord. So that's why passengers started rushing from one side to the other when there was suddenly flames coming through the side of the airplane. Needless to say, this is the point where air traffic control was like, yes, yes, fire off fire, the right fire. wing. <laughs> <laughs> they could clearly see it. Okay. This is basically from the tower's perspective. That's crazy. So, fun stuff, right? Or something. Or something. There's also, we'll have to find it after, we'll do this in the post episode, but there's a whole video somebody took from literally the whole evacuation. Great. Somebody caught the whole evacuation. Anyway. Okay. So, as I said, the part was determined to be the high pressure turbine stage two disc. The stage two disc is made of a nickel alloy, a material made by ATI Special Materials, or ATISM, who used a triple melt process to create a lump of this alloy called an ingot, which then gets converted into thick round bars called billets. My science starts here. To make the ingot, they melt the alloy using vacuum induction, which is using an induction furnace in a vacuum chamber. During this process, they combine the different components of the alloy while reducing impurities that could come from things like oxygen and nitrogen, things in the air, which is why it's in a vacuum. As we discussed in our very first episode... These interstitial impurities could cause a weak spot in the material because it forms oxides and nitrides, which are brittle compared to the surrounding alloy. It's like putting a section of glass in a hunk of metal. That part will break first when stretched or compressed. This melted alloy is then poured into ingot molds. The next step is called electroslag remelting. There's a term. Yeah, right? Which continuously melts the ingot back down through a, quote, Molten bath of electrically conductive and chemically reactive slag and collects the purified material in a water-cooled mold. This sounds like nothing I want to be anywhere near. Yeah, no. When it's no, happening. No, you don't. Electricity and heat and falling hot metal and... It's a great time. By doing this through an electrically produced superheated environment, those impurities that made it through the initial heating process take the heat as a catalyst to chemically bind to the reactive elements in the slag layer and float to the top, while the more pure alloy sinks to the bottom of the water-cooled mold, thereby reconstructing a new ingot. 
There is a drawback to this process, however. A layer of that slag then forms between the new ingot and the mold, which thermally insulates it, making it hard to cool down, and it compromises the structure as a whole, because it's still soft, because it's hot. Because of this, the top, bottom, and sides of the ingot are all cut off. The last step is called vacuum arc remelting, which I actually have a figure of. In a vacuum chamber, the ingot is attached to a direct current power supply and is lowered toward the mold until an arc strikes like a lightning bolt, melting the ingot. As the pure alloy drips into the mold, the gases left in the alloy are freed with the heat, and unwanted contaminants vaporize under the heat. Once again, the top and bottom are removed, as well as any scale on the sides. Yeah, I don't want to be any part of this process. A lot of excess no. in this process, and also this is just one complicated, very, very well thought out process in reality. But they do it this way because of UA-232. Yeah. Yeah, so there's no impurities that cause... Problems. Yeah. Theoretically. Theoretically. The next step was to form the ingot into billets. Why? Well... Metals have grains and grain sizes. They kind of look like scales, and inside the scales are the grains, like the grain of a steak when you're cutting. And all of the scales have grains going in different directions. But the smaller the grains, the more grains you have, the stronger the material is. Well, after forming the ingot, the grain sizes are pretty big, meaning it's not as strong as it could be. So the ingot is then softened with heat and stretched and stretched and stretched in different directions and molded to form billets that have smaller and more grains, making the material stronger. So it's like taffy with metal, I guess. Wow. The ends are then lopped off because they're more likely to have defects. The billet is then put in a water tank and two ultrasonic transducers go along the length, emitting an ultrasonic wave that will bounce off of any impurities, such as an interstitial impurity, as we discussed, a void or a crack or something like that, and will then echo back to the transducer. That part, if it does have any kind of defect, is then not used. So only the completely defectless parts go through. Only the defectless billets make it through. Okay, but then how did this happen? I'm getting there. Exactly. In the case of the accident part, the ingot and subsequent billets manufactured passed all inspections, including an inspection using a high-sensitivity fluorescent penetrant used after manufacturing, and that was completed per... General Electric specifications, which were changed after UA-232. Yes, this is the same engine manufacturer as UA-232. But a different material. A different material. This is a nickel alloy, not titanium. But all of these manufacturing processes did change after UA-232 because they realized they could be better, and now they're better. So what happened? Well, the NTSB's material laboratory in D.C. dove right in. I would love to work for these people, but I also don't want to live in D.C. Very similar to UA-232, there was a discolored section on the front edge of the disc at the bore end or at the end closer to the center. Now, think of this alloy as a 3D grid of various metallic atoms, but mostly nickel. Now, let's put in an atom that's not supposed to be there. Well, now the grid is slightly wonky. It's not perfect. Rows and columns don't line up just right. This is called a discontinuity, and it perpetuates through the entire grid. This discontinuity can lead to a crack along the grain structure that we talked about before, and this is exactly what metallurgists found had happened. The discolored section on the disc is white, the white area on the disc known as the discrete dirty white spot. That is literally what it's called. That is I, the formal term. 
The discrete dirty white spots showed that six total cracks had started along dark discontinuity stringers produced by regions of oxide particles, or areas where oxygen had gotten inside the alloy and reacted with the metal, producing a brittle ceramic area. It is called dirty because it does have these stringers. If it didn't, it would be called a clean discrete white spot. The fracture crack, the one that actually caused the disc to fall apart, grew to almost half an inch in length through low cycle fatigue, as we've discussed before, which eventually failed catastrophically and overstressed from the stress concentration radially or outwardly. This discrete dirty white spot is known to happen during the vacuum arc remelting process when any remaining oxygen or nitrogen reacts with the heat to oxidize with the metal. Now, why wasn't it detected? Records show that all inspection was done up to the standards that GE required for the billets, which was an industry-wide standard all around, and no anomalies were found. This was the first failure of this alloy due to a discrete dirty white spot. It turns out that the FAA had done a study on this kind of anomaly in 2008 and found that some, called stealth anomalies, were so well-bonded and ductile that they don't crack when the billet is being shaped and pulled like taffy, and then they are, quote, indistinguishable from the parent alloy for sonic detection, end quote. The NTSB determined that because both ATISM and GE did not detect the flaw, it was undetectable by those inspection standards. Now, let's get ready for a throwback, as if I haven't done that already. This next part I am reading verbatim from the report. Some of the recommendations issued in response to the July 1989 United Airlines Flight 232 accident in Sioux City have relevance to the circumstances of the American Airlines Flight 383 accident, even though the Sioux City accident involved a a manufacturing defect on a fan disc made of titanium. For example, after the Sioux City accident, the NTSB issued Safety Recommendation A-90-167, which asked the FAA to do the following. Intensify research in the non-destructive inspection field to identify emerging technologies that can serve to simplify, automate, or otherwise improve the reliability of the inspection process. Such research should encourage the development and implementation of redundant inspection oversight for critical part inspections, such as for engine rotating components. In response to this recommendation, the FAA established the Engine Titanium Consortium in 1993 to provide the FAA and engine manufacturers with reliable and cost-effective new methods and improvements to existing methods for detecting cracks and other defects in titanium materials and components, end quote. So everything I talked about in episode one. Yeah. It's all relevant. Yep, they called it out specifically in the report for this. There's a throwback to episode one in our one year in. Woo! In 2005, the FAA published the work of phase two of the consortium, which talks about better inspection techniques like multi-zone and phased array inspections that were better than ultrasonic inspection that was still being used when this accident plane's engines were manufactured in 1997 and 1998. The NTSB could not determine if better inspections could have found this flaw, but determined that because it had been 12 years since the FAA published that data, that it might be worth looking into in the future. Now, you might ask, why didn't American Airlines detect something since the parts were manufactured? The cracks were growing. American Airlines had been performing eddy current inspections and fluorescent penetrant inspections as mandated by airworthiness directives over the years. 
Fluorescent penetrant, or FPI, detects surface-level anomalies, and eddy current, or EDIs, can detect surface and near-surface level to a depth of 0.013 inches. The most recent FPI and EDI had been done in January of 2011. Now, I mentioned there were six cracks in total. Cracks 1 and 6 had propagated away from the surface, so they would not have been detected. The rest went toward the surface. Metallurgists determined that at the time of the 2011 inspection, crack 2 was 0.07 inches long, but 0.14 inches under the surface, undetectable by the inspection. Cracks 3 and 4 would have been 0.03 inches long, and crack 5 would have been 0.07 inches. They weren't able to determine when those cracks breached the surface, which they did do, but they did determine that cracks 3, 4, and 5 initiated at least about 1,400, 1,200, and 3,200 cycles respectively before the disc failure, and the inspection was done at 3,050 cycles before the accident. If they had breached the surface, they would have been easily detectable, so investigators determined that none of the cracks had breached the surface and none would have been able to be detected by American Airlines maintenance. Unless they propagated and they just didn't do anything about it. Well, they didn't have, they were not required to inspect the stage two fan disc between the accident and January 2011. Right. So five, over five years, five and a half years in between the inspection and the accident. Because you have to entirely tear apart the engine to get to it. Right. Yeah, I bet that changed after this. We'll get into it. Yeah. Now, the NTSB did put in a summary of their work on minimizing rotor bursts, or uncontained engine failures. It was mentioned that the FAA had gotten a recommendation from the Australian Transportation Safety Board regarding its investigation of a certain Airbus A380 having an engine failure in the air, and how the FAA should work with the European Aviation Safety Agency, or the EASA, to review the incident and create advisory material from it. Huh. So there's another one. There's another one. And that had happened before this. Yep. That was that episode came out like a month ago, about a month ago, a little over a month ago. Recently. Yes. yes. After this American Airlines 383, the FAA sent a letter to the ATSB saying it was evaluating uncontained engine failure events including Qantas Flight 32 and intended on revising advisory circular 20-128A based on at least 40 different rotor burst events. But this revision did not come out before this report, and I think it was put on hold for the 737 MAX. But more about safety changes later. Let's have a quick break before we go into findings. Break, break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Now that we got some whiskey. Whiskey! Let's go to findings and recommendations. Yeah. So, by the way, we would have one more incident we can talk about even after this one where there's an uncontained engine failure. It's the most recent deadly accident in commercial aviation history. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. In the United States. And that was a Southwest uh, Airlines. Someone <laughs> rich, <laughs> pretty sure, put it on our 
list at some point in the coming months. Oh, good. So. So we have an even more recent one, and I believe that'll probably be the most recent accident we'll ever talk about. It's only actually a year and a half after this one. Yep. It was recommended by Rich, and you can expect it on the 27th. Yes. So the week after this one. (laughs) Huh. That's kind of hilarious, because we had no idea that that... Yeah, if we had released this one one week later, which didn't make much sense, actually, because this fits better. Chronologically. Yes, this fits better with our one year. Um, But if we had released this one week later, the only thing this would have had going for it is it would have been one day before four years since the crash. Yeah, but I think this is a good anniversary episode since it harks back so much to UA-232. And Qantas-32 and so on and so forth. We have brought up three separate accidents in this. Because there's also the other American Airlines, 383. Moving on. Findings. The first two are about the airplane and the crew. Woo! Woo! (laughs) As they always are. These are verbatim from the report. They found that the right engine experienced an uncontained high-pressure turbine stage 2 disc rupture during the takeoff roll. The HPT stage 2 disc initially separated into two fragments, One fragment penetrated through the inboard section of the right wing, severed the main engine fuel feed line, breached the fuel tank, traveled up and over the fuselage, and landed about 3,000 feet away. The other fragment exited outboard of the right engine, impacting the runway and fracturing into three pieces. Oh yeah, I think I forgot to mention that. It used to just be two pieces, and then it hit the runway. Yeah, it separated in two diagonally, basically. One went downward into the runway, one went up over the airplane. And that piece that went downward hit the the runway and fractured into three pieces very quickly. And that's the three pieces they found yes, because, toward the terminal. Right, the because terminal. it was going downward toward the runway, it fractured and continued to travel in the direction of the terminals. Yes. It ended up on taxiways and in the grass, and the runway was, needless to say, completely destroyed where it hit. And so there was definitely a lot of FOD, or foreign object debris, all over nah, that really? runway. Yeah. Yes. A- and it was charred and covered in foam. Yes. And brake marks and, yes, lots of things. They found that the high-pressure turbine stage 2 disc failed because of multiple low-cycle fatigue cracks that initiated from an internal material anomaly known as a discrete dirty white spot, which formed during the processing of the material from which the disc was manufactured. I'm still slightly amused at their very technical term. Yes. Also, fun fact, all of the episodes are now put on the website in their entirety, so if you're having trouble visualizing this, you can actually listen to the episode and look at the visuals. All on the website. All on the website at the same time. Because we realized that sometimes, like to me, we talked about how this has very heavy science-based stuff. And if I didn't understand something, I would I would interrupt. But I didn't need to because the visuals were good enough with the explanation that it makes sense. Mm-hmm. But you may have trouble doing that. So if you need help, either just go to the website and look at it, or you can listen to the episode while you're looking at the visuals on the website. Yeah. And if you're still confused, email us. Yes. And then we'll forward it to Chris <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much it. So I get to say that fun term a few more times. The discrete dirty white spot was most likely not detectable by the inspection methods used during production of the high-pressure turbine stage 2 disc. So, wait, I have a question. Yes. Would they be able to see it on the disc? Or was it inside the disc? It was inside the disc. It was inside the disc when they 
initially did the inspections five years, five and a half years prior to the accident. Yep. So in that five and a half years, it managed to surface, but they hadn't done any inspections. But it would be as if, like, so say you had a flat surface in front of you, the crack was coming towards you, so you'd see, like, a point. You wouldn't see, like, a lengthwise crack. Well, I mean, like, the dirt, the white spot. No. It was, no. like, in between? It was internal. It was internal? Okay. Mm-hmm. So, Otherwise, it would have been stopped in manufacturing. Right. So, yes, this was not detectable when they did the inspections. And that five and a half years, the reason it's difficult to justify doing that inspection more often is because that requires literally removing the engine from the airplane. And, and doing, tearing it apart. And tearing it apart. And the airlines try to do this as infrequently as possible while also maintaining safety. And that's because it takes quite a bit of manpower time and money to do all this. So usually it's not terrible with most airplanes these days because they've designed them where they can drop the engine, put a new one in, they can do it overnight, and let the airplane fly again. So they take that engine they took out, and then they do the inspection on that engine before redeploying it on another airplane. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for them to do this within that five and a half year period if the airplane's still within what's considered the cycle limit for that engine, which it was. Turns out, the airplane had a problem anyways. That engine had a problem anyways during that cycle time. And that was a manufacturing problem. That's why there's so much scrutiny on the manufacturing process, is to avoid those problems while the airplane isn't getting inspected, while the engine isn't getting inspected. Now, I understand you might not have made it through my entire science spiel, and you just skipped to this point, but I kind of describe when that particular impurity would have made it into the process. Yes. And then it wouldn't have been detectable until almost immediately after they did the inspection, actually. It would have started to come, that crack would have started to come up within that cycle range. Yep. Almost immediately after the inspections. They found that additional Federal Aviation Administration and industry efforts are needed to determine if enhanced ultrasonic inspection methods are a best practice for inspecting nickel parts during manufacturing. In other words, they probably want something else to inspect this, so they need newer technologies even still. Another non-destructive inspection technique. Correct. Or NDI. Yep. They found that the fatigue cracks that initiated from the discrete dirty white spot were not detectable at the time of the high-pressure turbine stage 2 disc's last inspection using the surface-based inspection techniques mandated by the applicable airworthiness directive. They found that if a subsurface inspection technique, or such as an ultrasonic inspection, had been required at the time of the high-pressure turbine stage 2 disc's last inspection, the cracks that developed from the discrete dirty white spot should have been detectable because of the size of the cracks at the time and the sensitivity of ultrasonic inspection techniques. So to clarify on this, ultrasonic inspection techniques are used at the time of manufacturing, not during maintenance inspections by the airline. Right. They use a surface level inspection at, at this point in history. I can't speak to now. But if they had used the same inspection technique that had been done at manufacture, they would have found it. Quite frankly, it's very difficult for them to do this because the technology is both pricey and generally requires some specialized people to do the inspection. Correct. And so doing asking an average AMP, you know, basically an aircraft mechanic, to do this inspection was impractical at most airlines. Now, that's not to say in the future it can't be something that more of them specialize in. But getting the technology is also very pricey. Well, and I don't know if you recall me saying to do the ultrasonic inspection during manufacturing, they had to submerge the entire billet. Right. Now you have a 
fan disc. A large fan disc. So it's not as easy to submerge and run a transducer along it because now it's not a uniform shape. Right. They found that future aircraft certification efforts would benefit from guidance on uncontained engine failure debris models and resulting design mitigations that is based on lessons learned from recent in-service events. This is basically talking about this along with the Qantas, as well as the 40 others it calls out. Yep. They found that the captain made a timely decision to reject the takeoff and perform the maneuver in accordance with company training and procedures. He did good. He did. I is proud. You know, actually, the crew resource management actually worked to a T in this, much like it did in 232. We can't say the same about the cabin. We'll get to that in a minute. They found that the captain's decision to perform the engine fire checklist was appropriate, given his training, the information provided by air traffic control, and the fire warnings in the cockpit. He had three indications. There was a fire. Time to do the, the engine fire checklist. Yeah. Although... The whole, wow, look at that smoke, man. <laughs> yeah. That was probably unnecessary. <laughs> I mean, yeah. He's still human, though. I mean, that was only a split second. Literally, that was, in the time it took him to say that, he only lost about three seconds. And it turns out that didn't matter much anyways, because the fire extinguisher didn't do anything for the fire in the airplane. Mostly because it wasn't the engine that was on fire. It was the fuel coming from the engine, from the wing after the engine part went through it that caused the fire. It's not really that I think he wasted time on that. I just think it's kind of shocking that he said that. I mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, it, I don't know. It seems weird to me, but whatever. But you, you also never know what you'll do in a crisis. Yeah. Your brain does true. weird things. Your brain does do <laughs> but, weird things. But look at that smoke, dude. Like, what? Yeah. I don't know. I just thought that was high-key hilarious for the amount of danger everyone yeah. was in. They found that engine fire checklist that specifically address ground operations would allow a flight crew to secure an engine and command an evacuation, if required, in a timelier manner than engine fire checklists that do not differentiate between ground and in-flight operations. So they want an on-ground fire checklist that includes the evacuation procedures. Now, I read a little bit into this earlier in the report, but basically they had the verbiage that they wanted it to say, and that verbiage would include either in a non-immediate situation be one of the first items on the checklist where they say they have to make a PA announcement that says, everybody please remain seated until further notice. And then a another one where it would be in an immediate situation where that earlier in the checklist, it would allow them to shut the engine down and say, evacuate, evacuate, evacuate. They found that the flight attendants made a good decision to begin the evacuation given the fire on the right side of the airplane and the smoke in the cabin, but the left overwing exit should have been blocked while the left engine was still operating because of the increased risk of injury to passengers who evacuated from this exit. Also, you shouldn't have passengers going up to you saying, we should evacuate. Yes, this that, is true. That shouldn't be the way. If you, as a professional, decided, you know what, we need to have a conversation between all of us on board, cabin crew, be like, hey, we really can't. We need to get them off. Right. That's a little bit different than having people, like, force themselves, basically, onto the flight crew to get them to open the the sides of yes. the plane. I'm, I'm, frankly, I'm shocked that more people were not injured from the left engine still being on. Quite frankly, yes. I mean, this is true. And any injured, honestly, when there's an evacuation is pretty normal, though, because it doesn't matter if that engine's on or not. People are going to get injured because they... 
go too quickly, they fall from somewhere, they're running, they trip and fall, they trip over something of the airplane, well, they pay attention, they hit their head, you know, those kinds of things normal happen. normal kind of thing, but the engine was still on, so therefore injuries based on that were increased. Right. Or probability of them happening were increased. Yes. If, when the engine was on compared to it being off. Right. Right. So, right. first of all, if you're a passenger, you should know, maybe not the best idea to go out of a plane with the engine still running. Right. I realize you're in a panic mode and you want to get off because there's yeah. fire, right? But of course. Like, wait a few seconds until they shut the engine off. Yeah, exactly. You'll survive, right? Yeah. If you need to go to the other side of the plane, right, the cabin crew won't keep you from doing so, but... Right. Like... Just just chill a little bit. Don't right. panic, panic, because that's when people get stuck and um, they get stampeded and people get crushed and that kind of thing, and that's just not good. Right, exactly. Well, we'll continue on this a lot more because they definitely thought the evacuation process was a mess. They found that if the flight crew or the flight attendants had communicated after the airplane came to a stop, the flight crew could have become aware of the severity of the fire on the right side of the airplane and the need to expeditiously shut down the engines. So in other words, there wasn't enough communication between the flight deck and the cabin by the time they came to a stop that the flight crew, they could see the smoke, but they didn't have any clue how severe it was in the cabin. They didn't know how bad it was for the passengers. And if the flight crew had been talking to the cabin crew immediately after they came to a stop, then they would have had a better idea of how quickly they needed to shut down the engines and deal with the evacuation. This could have saved some injuries, but ultimately everybody survived. This is a little bit of a moot point. They found that American Airlines did not adequately train flight attendants qualified on the Boeing 767 to effectively use the different interphone system models installed on the airplane during an emergency. <sighs> okay, so this is... They actually, literally in the report, had a picture of both phones. Because in prior to January 2003, any 767s that were manufactured had this little phone with a handful of buttons on it. One was to call the cockpit, one was to make a passenger announcement, one was to call the other positions. Like, there was only a few buttons on this phone, period. And that was super simple, easy to follow. After January 2003, the newer phone systems allowed for quite a few more abilities. They had an actual number pad, but then on the back of the phone was printed a bunch of numbers for the different positions, to call the cabin, to call the cockpit, to do all these different things. And... That meant that these were also installed within American's fleet, both types. And so the cabin crew weren't familiar with both types. So they would press the wrong buttons all the time, do the wrong thing. This is why they found it difficult to communicate during this evacuation. There's the picture of the old phone. So this is the old phone? It has not very many buttons. This is the new phone. It has a keypad and all the numbers on the back for what you call. This was a waste of time. I okay, here's the deal, right? I realize that and they have something like this now unless they change the phones after this, but the thing I have a problem with is first of all, you should already know the difference between the PA system and the cockpit cuz those are the two places you're going to call most likely the most. Of course. And then you should always know how to get a hold of your fellow flight attendants, even if it's not all of them. 
So to me, it says they didn't spend enough time getting to know this well enough that they were confused. Right. Well, also, it does say it printed on the back. It does. But quite clearly, that's what they're saying here is they say, I'll reread it. They found that American Airlines did not adequately train flight attendants qualified in the Boeing 67 to effectively use the different interphone system models installed in the airplane during an emergency. So they just weren't trained enough to use them, which, to be fair, when you're training some people, this would probably take 15 minutes, probably. Yeah. Yeah. To train properly on the usage of the phone and what's PA and what's the cockpit, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So, I don't know. It To me, just train your flight attendants so that if it happens again, they can contact each other. Right. Have a conversation between professionals on what they think they should do. Right. If the captain has not called them to evacuate yet. Yeah, exactly. They found that the FAA's inadequate actions to improve guidance and training on communication and coordination between flight and cabin crews during emergency situations, including evacuations, could lead to negative consequences for the traveling public if the safety issue continues to be unresolved. This is key. This is basically saying, okay, now we have crew resource management in place, and we have all these procedures for evacuation in place, but there's still no communication happening between the flight crew and the cabin crew to coordinate both. So it's funny you say that because I'm I'm reading this. We have a checklist, a quick reference checklist for an A319 and an A320 for an airline. And for a rejected takeoff, it's in the corner as you open it up. And it says, first you have to notify ATC. And then you make a PA announcement that says, please remain seated. <laughs> please remain seated. Yep. And so then there it is. It's like second item on the checklist. Put on the parking brake if you're already stopped, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. And then go to an evacuation checklist after if you have to evacuate. And if you don't, go to a different checklist. Right. So the primary thing is to make sure you take care of evacuating the passengers safely and as quickly as possible. Right. So the the fact that they never made an announcement to say, please stay seated. <laughs> please remain in your seats. Right. That was a little bit of a not great. And at least if they had said this, this would have been a form of communication between the cockpit and the cabin crew, because at least Mm -hmm. that would have been the cockpit telling the flight crew what to do with the passengers. Well, and then you look at the evacuation checklist, and it says, first thing, notify ATC, verify the park brake is set, turn on the lights in the cabin, depressurize the plane, turn off the engines, then announce, release your seatbelts, and get out. Right. So you need to wait for the evacuation from the flight crew, but they didn't have really any conversation to the cabin crew about what was happening. That's also not on the checklist, though. That's true. Today. And, I mean, but they have the remain seated part of that checklist. So my my thing is, is there was nothing to tell the, the cabin crew what exactly was going on. Right. To figure out. I mean, to be fair, they should have stood their ground and not opened doors before they were supposed to. But Yes, but they were also being they, prudent because of the fire in the cabin, which is right. fair. This is, I mean, it's hard to say that either side did anything wrong when the FAA didn't have guidance on this. And that's why the NTSB, specifically in that last one, called out the FAA as having inadequate actions to improve guidance and training on communication coordination between the flight and cabin crews. Just there, that's enough right there. Just to have any kind of communication between those two... 
entities, the cabin crew and the flight crew, is important. Even if that communication is just the flight crew immediately announcing, remain seated or evacuate. Yeah. You know? Just, like, let them know what's going on. Like, remain seated. We'll let you know when to evacuate. Right. Or even just calling the head flight attendant, who should be at the front of the plane. Yep. To say, have them remain seated. We'll let you know when you can evacuate. And then they can transmit the message out on the PA system. Right. But it would have given the the lead flight attendant also the opportunity to say, hey, there is a lot of smoke at the rear of the cabin. I believe it's safest right now for us to evacuate immediately. Right. And then the captain can then be like, okay, we're going to shut off the engine. Yeah. And you can evacuate. Because, I mean, in that case, once he knows that, he knows that he has one working engine. The immediate thing for him is to literally, it's a one lever procedure. You reach down, you cut off the fuel. So if he had heard that they were beginning the evacuation, it would have been as simple as him reaching down and pulling that lever down, and they would have cut the engine off. Yeah, so basically the whole point of the conversation is communication, communication, communication. Talk to people. Yes. Both ways. So they wanted, obviously they brought up that they were irritated with the FAA on this. Only two more findings. They found that the flight crew members and flight attendants did not coordinate in an optimal manner once the passengers were evacuated. So in other words, there were people running all over the place once they were out of the airplane, and they did not try to, you know, keep the people nearby. Which, on the evacuation checklist, which I'm going to refer back to, the responsibility of all crew members is to assemble the passengers a safe distance upwind from the aircraft, keeping in mind the fire threat and approaching rescue vehicles, provide first aid and comfort as necessary. Yes, you I might like the comfort part. You might know the evacu the emergency vehicles part. That was yeah key in the Asiana crash. There's another one we can bring up. Yeah. And actually, when I listened to the ATC recording for this, the the air traffic controllers were working with the emergency vehicles, and they told them, you know, you can cross any runway. They told all aircraft on the airport to stop because they weren't sure if there were people walking around. People walking around yeah. anywhere, and they told the emergency vehicles. They said. You know, approach the airplane with caution. Beware of people. There are people all over the place. Which there were. They could see from the tower that there were people everywhere walking around the airplane. So this was a dangerous situation. Yeah. They found that the evidence of passengers retrieving carry-on baggage during this and other recent emergency evacuations demonstrates that previous FAA actions to mitigate this potential safety hazard have not been effective. Well, yeah. Okay. To be fair, we're Americans. I will say, we're belligerent people. And we like our stuff. Yeah. We're materialistic. And so it does not surprise me in the least that someone tried to take their baggage off the plane. It does not surprise me at all. However, you have to realize there are things that if this happens with an airline, they will replace your belongings. Yes. I mean, the (laughs) the biggest thing is self-preservation should come first before your stuff. Don't. Don't die because you want to take your baggage off a plane. Or don't hurt yourself or another person because you're deciding to throw the bag down the slide. Right. Like, come on, people. Just leave it. It's stuff. Stuff can be replaced. You can't be replaced. Right. (laughs) Fun fact. Yeah. You and other human beings can't be replaced. Your stuff, always replaceable. Exactly. So, and like I said, most airlines have it that if you end up being in an accident for some reason and you lose baggage and stuff, they pay for your belongings. They have insurance for that. Yeah. Yeah, they have insurance for that. They help you at least pay for the damages and stuff. That's 
part of the deal. So, don't take your bags off a of flight, friends. Please? That said, that's the end of the findings. <laughs> okay. okay, probable go. cause is not short. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the failure of the high-pressure turbine stage 2 disc, which severed the main engine fuel feed line and breached the right main wing fuel tank, releasing fuel that resulted in a fire on the right side of the airplane during the takeoff roll. The high-pressure turbine stage 2 disc failed because of low cycle fatigue cracks that initiated from an internal subsurface manufacturing anomaly that was most likely not detectable during production inspections and subsequent in-service inspections using the procedures in place. Contributing to the serious passenger injury was 1. The delay in shutting down the left engine, and 2. A flight attendant's deviation from the company procedures which resulted in passengers evacuating from the left overwing exit while the left engine was still operating. Contributing to the delay in shutting down the left engine was 1. The lack of a separate checklist procedure for Boeing 767 airplanes that specifically addressed engine fires on the ground, and 2. The lack of communication between the flight and cabin crews after the airplane came to a stop. Yeah, so that pretty much talked about everything we talked about. The one little thing that I do want to hit on is that that lack of the on-ground Yeah, there checklist. wasn't a procedure for an on-ground fire. Right. So the fire checklist that they had was very generalized, so that that on-ground checklist is really key. That meant that they... Didn't know what to do if the fire was on the ground well, rather than in the air. Well, if the fire was on the ground, then they were still running the same checklist they would in the air, which didn't include shutting down the other engine, because, of course, if they were flying, they didn't want you to. You didn't want to shut down the <laughs> engine, yeah. So that didn't come until the evacuation checklist. Having a separate on-ground engine fire checklist, having that other checklist for the on-ground engine fire would have allowed them... To, to shut, shut down, down the, the engine faster. Yeah, shut down the engine almost right over the other engine yeah. as soon as they came to a stop, essentially, to make way for that impending evacuation. So now for recommendations. They recommended to the FAA establishing and lead an industry group that evaluates current and enhanced inspection technologies regarding their appropriateness and effectiveness for applications using nickel alloys and use the results of this evaluation to issue guidance pertaining to the inspection process for nickel alloy rotating engine components. That's the big one. It's kind of like in UA-232 where they talked about the eventually what became the... Titanium, titanium Consortium. Yeah, the Titanium Consortium. They want them to create another group. A nickel consortium. A nickel alloy consortium, basically, for these nickel alloy parts to have a totally different procedure that works best for these parts. Now, earlier I said I think that a lot of the resolutions to this were put on hold. The reason I say that is this report came out in 2018. Not that long after is when the 737 MAX crashes occurred. So I think that kind of put a stop on the FAA for certain... They were busy. Resolutions? They're very, very busy. They still are very, very busy to this day with a lot of things. So that's not to say that this nickel consortium wouldn't happen. That's not to say any of these other recommendations won't happen. It's just that right now is not going to happen. Well, and quite frankly, if the engine manufacturers want to keep the business, then it's smart of them to start developing newer ways to inspect these prior to leaving the manufacturing line. Correct. And we know an airline mechanic. I did ask him about current non-destructive inspection techniques before we had our first episode for UA-232, and he did mention the use of ultrasonic inspection techniques. Yes. So that has probably been implemented at this time. Yep. So it's already better, because now they're using 
subsurface inspection techniques, which is the next recommendation. Yes. They recommended to the FAA requiring subsurface in-service inspection techniques, such as ultrasonic inspections for critical high-energy, life-limited rotating parts for all engines. There it is. You like my segue? Yeah. Your segu. Segu. (laughs) (laughs) But that's pretty key. It's like they they have that technique for the manufacturing process, but not for the in-service inspections. And so they can't see deep into the part, basically, without that. Mm -hmm. They want to do that now. They recommend a revising advisory circular 20-128A, which is the design considerations for minimizing hazards caused by uncontained turbine engine and auxiliary power unit rotor failure, end quote. That is quite the long title. They wanted to revise it based on an analysis of uncontained engine failure data since the time that the advisory circular was issued to minimize hazards to an airplane and its occupants if an uncontained engine failure were to occur. The revised advisory circular should include modifications to the accepted design precautions for fuel tanks given the fires that have occurred after uncontained engine failures. I looked to see if this has been revised. I have not found a revision yet. In the report, they said that they would have a draft out by the end of 2018 after this report came out. But again, I'm not... It's so recent that I don't think anything's happened, but if you guys know that this has been revised, please send it to us. Thank you. Right. They recommended, a, when approving the the operating procedures of a 14 code of Federal Regulations Part 121, air carriers, so in other words, airlines, require operators to develop and or revise emergency checklist procedures for an engine fire on the ground to expeditiously address the fire hazard without unnecessarily delaying an evacuation. There's the whole ground checklist thing again. Important. They recommended developing and issuing guidance to all air carriers that conduct passenger carrying operations regarding discussing this accident during recurrent flight attendant training to emphasize the importance of effectively assessing door and overwing exit during exits during an unusual or emergency situation, and two, providing techniques for identifying conditions that would preclude opening exits, including an operating engine. Just don't leave. Don't get out if the engine's on. Yeah, especially behind it. Yeah. Or over it. Or over it. In front of it's not great either, but... Don't walk toward it if it's running. You see all those bad movies that see people sucked into engines? Like The Incredibles. That's how that happens. Yeah, don't do that. That's how engines work. If you don't know how an engine works... It sucks in air and spits it out the back. Yeah. That's how an engine works. Yeah. Don't you... walk toward an operating engine. Well, and remember that you can't see air, so you can't see how much of an impact those engines are having, but it's sucking in a lot of air. Even and if it, it doesn't look like it, easily it is. suck you in. Well, and then it's pushing out that same amount of air out of With pin... a higher pressure. Out a pinhole out the back. That pressure's unbelievable. So the guy who walked behind the engine and got blown over, no duh. I mean, he didn't know he was trying to evacuate. And he was just doing whatever the flight attendant probably told him to do. But still. Yes. Not great, my friends. Not great. Don't get eaten by an engine. Right. This has been your (laughs) public service announcement. I guess. (laughs) Hashtag don't get eaten by an engine. Yeah. They recommended reviewing the training programs of all Part 121 operators and make changes as necessary to ensure that the programs provide flight attendants and flight crews with training aids and hands-on emergency scenarios that account for the different interphone systems 
that air carriers operate. I think it's kind of sad they had to recommend that, but... Yeah, but obviously it became an issue in this accident, so it was important. They recommended conducting research to, one, measure and evaluate the effects of carry-on baggage on passenger deplaning times and safety during an emergency evacuation, and two, identify effective countermeasures to reduce any determined risks and implement the countermeasures. So they want to determine how bad it actually is if people take their stuff with them, and how, if it's determined that that's got some really bad impl- you know, implications, how to counter that how to fight those in an emergency situation. Then they recommended to Boeing to work with operators as required to develop and or revise emergency checklist procedures for an engine fire on the ground to expeditiously address the fire hazard without unnecessarily delaying an evacuation. Again, the ground checklist thing. And then the same thing to American Airlines. Then the same thing to American Airlines. Then they bring up the previously issued recommendations to the FAA, which are they recommended revising Advisory Circular 120-48, which was communication and coordination between flight crew members and flight attendants, to update guidance and training to provide to flight and cabin crews regarding communications during emergency and unusual situations to reflect current industry knowledge based on research and lessons learned from relevant accidents and incidents over the last 20 years. That's just, it it already, so basically it already existed at the time of this accident, but they wanted to further enforce that, saying there needs to be actual training and on this communication between flight crews and cabin crews during an emergency situation, and really at all times, to make sure that everybody's part of this team. This has been implemented. As of January 27th, 2020, Advisory Circular 120-48 was cancelled in favor of 120-48A, which has revised the procedures since the, I guess, 40 years since the initial advisory circular was implemented. Yes. So, this has been done. Cool. They recommended developing best practices related to evacuation communication, coordination, and decision-making during emergencies through the establishment of an industry working group, and then issue guidance for 121 operators to use to improve flight and cabin crew performance during evacuations. Kind of the same thing. They really hit hard on the emergency evacuation part of this, because I mean, it could have been worse. Yes. People could have died from that. Given what happened and the way it was handled, it really should have been worse, quite frankly. But yeah, I'm surprised people didn't get more injured and or die because of their evacuation techniques. Yes, but it still said that things went okay. I mean, that still shows that things are safer now than they were before. Because a lot of times evacuations could be a deadly process. And this wasn't. Yeah, but people are just as dumb. I mean, yes. I mean, if you know that an engine's running, not a great idea to get out on the wing and exit. just exit anywhere near it. Yes. And it's also not a great idea to take your baggage with you. Because as I said, you can hurt yourself. You can hurt other people. It's a thing. It can be replaced. I can tell there's going to be a Karen, who's and not anyone who's actually named Karen, just the idea of a Karen. Like, I paid $500 for that suitcase, and I'm not losing it. And I'm like, seriously? Now, I know, okay, so I know musicians. Musicians like to carry their instrument in the cabin if it's of a proper size. 
if some like violinist had this like super expensive Stradivarius violin and they're like it's so expensive it's gonna burn i'd be like i get it okay but but also a violin case as compared to a suitcase different but still you shouldn't take it off with you you could still hurt yourself or others i know and also that self-preservation thing does that cost your life Maybe. Stradivarius. (laughs) Okay, but it's, you know, taking it with you could mean both you and the Stradivarius get lost. Yeah, you're right. You also, if you have a Stradivarius violin, you should have insurance on it. Oh, really? (laughs) In case something like that happens. And it should be in a museum more than likely. Oh, probably. It depends on how, when it was made. If it was a real Stradivarius. Yeah. Made. Sorry, that was a really specific example. If you, right. don't, We're if musicians. you don't know mu- music stuff, you you won't get that reference. It's okay. Think of your most like the most valuable thing in your industry. That's basically it. Yeah. Yes. Well, and then there are people like cellists who will buy a seat for their cello. Yes. I mean, I get it. Right. I, I do too. But also, lugging a cello off of a burning plane. Cellos don't weigh that much. They're just it's big. size. Block the aisle. Better than a double base. Oh, God. So Which should be checked. So one year in, and I think we managed to bring up four previous accidents we've covered at least. At least. At least. And let alone most of the topics we've covered in here were covered in a lot of the other ones we've done. I mean, it shows that the, the industry is still developing and adapting. And that issues can reoccur. But also... It's getting safer. It is getting safer because... This accident wasn't deadly. No one died. Even with the chaos that ensued, it it proved that the industry knows how to better deal with these situations anyways when they do arise. Basically, you have to understand that it's not that they're expecting incidents to not happen at all. It's that they're expecting them to happen less, but we know what those incidents are. And can address them more readily. And we can address them more readily because we've dealt with them in the past. So UA-232 is a great example of how that was a really unexpected engine turbine failure that was uncontained, caused a bigger problem with the airplane, and that ended deadly. Well, we know that that's, that can happen now, so we've built all these safeguards in place in the expectation that it will happen again. And that's what happened. Again. <laughs> and again. And again. As we have brought up several times. Since it happened again... We knew what to do in a, you know, in the situation better. Now, luckily, this did happen on the ground, but it has happened in flight, and it's managed to not be deadly. So that proves that the industry has adapted so much. And I think one year in, we've really been able to prove that, and we hope we can keep doing that going forward. So we thank you for listening one year in, like a lot, because this has been quite the wild ride. It doesn't feel like a year at all, but I'm enjoying this a lot, and it just keeps growing and growing and growing, and... It's definitely become my latest passion. Yes, and I think it's worth it. I think this has all been worth it. Also, if you're just tuning in with us, hello, welcome. Welcome. Please listen to all the episodes. If you're going (laughs) backward. better, yeah. If If you're going backward, I have questions (laughs) for you. (laughs) If you're going backward, then ignore this emotional slight rant thingy. Or if you're a hopper like me. Because I hop around. Yeah. Weirdo. Go to the other episodes. You're the one who's weird, my dude. I listen to them in order, chronologically. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) 
Also, thanks, Chase, for becoming a patron. Yeah. 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 Patron. This past week, as we are recording, you have to realize we do record two weeks in advance. So we realize you will not hear your name for a couple of weeks. But thank you. He is now a $5 patron, or they. I don't want to assume your pronouns. pronouns. Don't want to assume your pronouns. So thank you so much for becoming a patron. Remember, there's info. I can see when you guys go to the Patreon because we creeping on you. <laughs> I can look at that on the website. But if you're ever curious on what's included and how much and all that stuff, go ahead, check that out. Again, if you want a little trailer of each Miranda Sode, that's also up on the website under Miranda Sodes. You click on whatever, which one you want to hear. There's a couple of minutes of information um, included there. Again, you can listen to any of the episodes, including the listener episode, on the website if you would like. Remember to submit your stories for the October listener episode, which when this comes out this week... We're probably going to record it this week, so you have like three days. Yeah. So when this comes out, submit you have a couple stat. days. Yeah. So remember, go to the website, go to the form, fill it out, submit it to us. Uh, your spooky stories, or if you just want to tell us a story, that's fine too. We had remember. someone do that. We did. Yeah. And we... We also now have a listener question... Yes. ...form you can fill out if you have a question about any of the episodes we've covered, about aviation in general, about how certain things work on planes, you're about to get on a plane, you want to know how this works, or you heard this noise on a plane, you want to know what it is. Or if you just want to know more about us. We're cool. Yeah. Anything... Or podcasting. Anything related to us, aviation, this podcast, anything in general, we have that now up on the website, and we will try to answer your questions on the podcast, live-ish. It'll be at the end. We Currently, the episode that has that information in it has not gone live yet, so some of you may have seen it on the website, but you don't know what it is, and we will do it at the end of each episode, so if we have any questions that week that we get, we will answer them on the podcast at the end of the episode that week. Yep. So you'll have to wait a couple weeks to hear it, but you'll get the answers. If you have any questions, remember you can always email us. You can also message us on Facebook or on Instagram and or Twitter. So There you go. Nice long episode for yeah, year one. Welcome back to the long episodes, friends, because we yeah, had a couple been episodes a minute. <laughs> where they weren't long. Hey, it turns out the long episodes do better, so thank you for listening. Yeah, <laughs> all the way through. And we will catch you next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.